and welcome to another episode of Anthropological, where we serve up some real-life applications for very anthropological theories. Uh, this episode, we're going to be discussing the wellness movement uh, and sort of in general, as it's personified through a shift in drinking culture, non-alcoholic beverages and drinking, and social spaces, and so much more. Uh, I am David Moore, Chicago bartender, actor and activist. My preferred pronouns are he, him, his. And for me, wellness is about drinking out water out of a pink blender bottle. Very cute. Mm -hmm. I have a blender bottle kind of like that as well. Great for shakes. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Kasira Hill. I'm your local anthropologist, uh, bartender, graphic designer, and um, definitely someone that has had ebbs and flows with overconsumption and underconsumption. <laughs> <laughs> underconsumption. I love it. Uh, and we are joined by Ben Branson. Uh, ben, why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody what you're up to? Uh, hey guys, thanks for having me. My name's Ben. I'm the founder of Seedlip. Uh, we are the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirits. We're trying to change the way the world drinks by giving you, hopefully, a good solution um, to the age-old dilemma of what do I drink when I'm not drinking alcohol and I don't fancy the sweet, um, sugared, childish mocktail. And we will get to that. And Ben, what, where in England are you based out of? Uh, so I'm in, in Hertfordshire, uh, which uh, just outside a little village on a farm, um, about an hour's drive outside of London. Very good. Dream. What a dream. <laughs> it's been good oh being, being able to, you know, be surrounded by fields and the countryside, uh, certainly during lockdown and getting the kids outside and yeah, with a bit better weather, you cannot beat the English countryside. <laughs> it sounds well, super thank ideal. You. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Um, per usual, we're gonna jump into a little bit of history, some context, a little bit less theory today um, and a little bit more just laying the groundwork so that we can all get a little bit of a very, very brief um, history of alcohol. Um, first, beer and wine, archeologists, anthropologists, historians start with this conversation because beer and wine kind of uh, came hand in hand with agriculturalism. The first archeological record that we have for um, beer and wine is about 10,000 years ago um, when they realized that fermentation was a thing, especially because there was a lot of grain. Um, beer used to be a ration for ancient Egyptian workers. Enslaved folks would get rations of grain and beer um, as payment. Um, and that's, like I said, 10,000 years ago, Northern Africa, areas of Iran and the Middle East. Um, the first use of distillation um, in archaeological record comes from areas in China, Egypt, and Mesopotamia for medicinal purposes um, and to clean water. Um, first creating balms and herbal essences, not the shampoo uh, and perfumes, was the first kind of use for distil uh, the distillation process. Um, those pots, the boiling, the all of it, um, especially with clean water, that kind of technology uh, started to spread farther, perfumes and medicinal use, um, using the, the, the distillation process for medicinal use was really important here. Um, in about 2000 BC, uh, Mesopotamia was really churning out perfumes. They were really utilizing this distillation process and that kind of naturally uh, transitioned into discovering that we were able to use the same process for creating hard alcohol for a higher content of alcoholic alcoholic liquids. Um, Persian folks in the 8th century used uh, alcohol from this distillation process for um, anesthetic. Um, when we jump to the plague in Europe, gin is commonly noted as uh, something that was used for medicinal purposes to fight off the plague. How valid that was, um, can't really say, wasn't there, but we all know um, that alcohol does reduce our immune system to a certain capacity. So it's interesting to look at these um, historical moments where alcohol was used in small portions 
for medicinal stuff. But then when we start to see a lot of consumption of alcohol in recreational spaces, how that how that changes how our body interacts with that. Um, green chartreuse and herbal liqueurs um, made by monks, noted as the elixir of life. Um, I'm kind of just spewing off a little bit so we can get to the point of where we are. But um, ancient East, Eastern Africans made Af uh, made alcohol from fermented bananas and had their own process in that. Uh, fermented fruits in Central America and uh, along with like seeds and herbs were really integral in uh, like areas like the Amazon and Central America. A lot of really good medicinal um, antioxidants there that aren't necessarily lost when we ferment or we distill. Of course, we're not talking about distillation in the Amazon at this moment. Um, this is more of just a general fermentation process. And then when we shift a little bit into the cultural understanding of how um, alcohol has been used for either medicinal purposes or to shift our ideologies around culture or shift our the way that we practice religion. For example, you know, we know that wine um, was written into Abrahamic religions. It was noted Oh, hello. My cat is back there playing with the plant. Um, medicinal, per I'm sorry, alcohol written in to um, Abrahamic religions. Uh, and in Christianity, we have wine, but then um, in Islam, you were not allowed to be drunk or overconsume wine or any distilled uh, product when you were praying. And that ended up uh, shifting that religion into something where you could no longer drink. And that was a kind of gradual transition there. Uh, we all know about rum and its integral role in sugarcane and the uh, transatlantic slave trade. Um, alcohol was also used in trade with Native Americans. And there's a stigmatism and a myth around alcoholism and Native Americans, but we won't touch on that this week. Um, and integral in voyaging in general, keeping water fresh on boats, keeping scurvy away, keeping um, certain products uh, kept on ships fresh um, instead of, you know, going bad and getting everyone sick. So with that being said, in general, there is a long history dating back from 10,000 to about 2000 BC where we start seeing distillation and um, a lot of that process being um, appropriated to suit um, either plagues that were going on, ailments that were very popular, or just, you know, your daily elixir that you ingest, right? We all like to take a little shot of bitters sometimes. It's good for our tummy, not unlike what was going on a couple thousand years ago. Um, so as we make that shift, I wanted to lay down that groundwork per always. Thank yeah. you. So with all that, so obviously alcohol is integral in pretty much all of history and cultural context, and it has been used as a, uh, I use the term like cultural lubricant for a lot of history. Um, but what I think is cool, what we're going to be discussing mostly today is this idea of the wellness movement, what that is, um, how did it start, was it a cultural shift, and then how we, uh, how it can be actually somewhat dangerous and harmful if it's used in sort of like a self-help kind of way. Um, and so I, first I just kind of wanted us to define as a group what well, the wellness movement is. Uh, so for me, generally when I think of the wellness movement, I think of a, uh, a shift, and I think it is mostly generational, but a general shift in the sort of day-to-day -day routines that we expect of ourselves. And a lot of that comes with uh, exercise, the way that we eat nutritionally and dieting. Um, and then when it comes to alcohol, which is specifically what this episode is about, it was this shift from either um, binge drinking and like campus bar drinking to low ABV and no alcohol drinking, um, which also creates conversations of inclusion and wanting obviously a larger demographic to be included into bar spaces and restaurant spaces. And Ben, as you mentioned earlier, to sort of eliminate words like mocktail and sort of change up the way that we, the way that we view it. And we'll get to that in a couple of things. So Ben, bringing you in, what for you, if you were to define the wellness movement in the, through your lens, how would you describe it? I think, you know, I, I sort of think as a, as a human race, we've, uh, we've been pretty ill 
you know, over the last 50 years, um, or, or let's just take the last 50 years, for example. Um, and I, I guess my lens of, of looking at all of this, you know, some of it comes from an agricultural lens. My family have been farming for over 300 years in the north of England, and we're still farming today. And I think I could probably take many different industries and look at the sickness within that industry um, in terms of the impact on the planet or the impact on our lives. Um, so I, I kind of, my hands get a bit sweaty when I, when I hear the word wellness because um, I'm not the yoga bunny. I'm not the kind of green juice yoga class, uh, lycra, stereotypical, wellness kind of person um so my approach and i guess it, this factors into definitely our, our work with seedlip um is is more about progress more about improvement more about um being informed you know human beings and trying to make better choices and and i think you know that's that's the world getting better and weller for want of a better made up word. Um, you know, we, uh, we should, and I hope that that that's part and parcel of, you know, people who want to look after themselves or people who want to look after, um, the world, uh, that shift that we we've seen and noticed over the, you know, the last 10, 15 years towards better, um, you know, and that plays out in lots of different avenues. We've got uh, better ingredients being grown, you know, for flavor rather than just yield. Um, we've got better access to mm -hmm. information. Um, we've got better options now if you don't want to drink alcohol uh, that previously weren't there. Um, and so although there's lots of forces at work that are, you know, causing great harm to the planet, um, there are also lots of winners and people who are part of the solution. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I probably, I come at it from my own lens, which is probably nature um, and agriculture in terms of wellness. And, you know, we as Seedlip are doing a lot of work in this space um, as, as well as, you know, making great drinks that people can drink if, if they're not drinking. But um, yeah, na nature's pretty, pretty important to me. Um, and so Seedlip's a fantastic vehicle with which to sort of share our love and care for nature with the world in the hope that, you know, people, uh, that can, that can be part of people's own wellness, right. In terms of just connecting or reconnecting with the natural world. I love that. And I, I definitely recognize, I feel like as I'm listening to you speak, there's parts of me that identify with, um, choosing intentionally choosing paths and um products or whatever it means to be more connected um and healthy in whatever way or sense that means i think that interconnected with um you know land and agriculture my dad is also someone that is in the agricultural um industry and has been working with like urban planning we had him on episode two um but you know making intentional choices and I think something that I really like um, about your message with Seedlip specifically is just um, is, you know, we don't have to, we, it's, it's about progress and improvement. And it's not about like being the stereotypical like wellness. What does this have to be cookie cutter for us? Like I don't need to um, buy into a certain form of wellness or a certain mm -hmm. um, form of taking care of myself because a lot of that, um, unfortunately is stuff that's like marketed to us or is attractive to us. And I think that, um, you know, in a similar sense, when we start talking about beverages specifically, it's like, uh, when we talk about like mocktails, it's like, okay, it's either for ladies that are preggers, um, in, you know, like in, in the stereotypical sense, yeah. uh, or in the stereotypical bar scene, right? Ladies that are preggers. Um, people that are trying to order something on the low. I think someone is like a bartender and a server 
um, when someone would lean in and be like, I'd like to get something non-alcoholic, don't put something in it. Either they're, they're preggers or they don't want someone to know that they're preggers or yep. they are, are recovering from their own stint of whatever they've got going on with alcohol yep. and overconsumption and they don't want to make that a point of conversation in that space, but they still want to participate. So it's right. like an air of, especially it, from my perspective in the bar scene, it's like an air of um, taking care of yourself, whether it be um, keeping that information that you don't want to share or not making it a point of contention in the conversation. But I think what's really lovely about, you know, the what you're what to drink when you're not drinking um, is that applies all around. You know what I mean? In this day and age, you don't have to be preggers or an alcoholic deemed to be viewed as an alcoholic right. if you are someone that doesn't choose to drink in that moment or at that time and that can be attached to your wellness in terms of like intentional you know taking a moment we all have ebbs and flows as we as we consume too much sugar or whatever yep. but um but that being a natural process and well welcomed and well available um, yep. to participate in, you know, maybe this time I'm not about it. Maybe I'm taking a break. Maybe I'm focusing on my gut health, like <laughs> all of that. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be, you know, my, my ultimate goal in all of this, right. It is normal, right. It is normal. It should be normal and okay to not have a drink. Like it, it's okay. It's not, a, it's not a, are you feeling okay? Are you pregnant? you know, what's going on. It's just, it's normal. And it's as normal as tonight, I'd like a glass of champagne. Or tonight, I'd like a seedlip and ginger ale. Like, so what? Um, and, yeah. I, and I guess, you know, we're obsessed with labels. And, you know, I, I kind of, I'm not a great fan of, you know, just because I didn't have meat at lunchtime doesn't make me a vegetarian, you know. And, just because I don't want to have an alcoholic drink doesn't mean that I'm ill or pregnant or a recovering alcoholic. Like, you know, we, we sort of bind ourselves and latch on to these, these labels um, that suddenly have to then kind of define us. And I just, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I don't think it's necessary. Um, and we certainly, we don't care if you drink alcohol or you don't drink alcohol we believe that if you are not drinking alcohol for that drink, you should get a great option that's being given care, attention, and effort, um, and that you should feel great about drinking it, and it should taste great, and the bartender should feel great about making it, and then win-win, everybody's happy. It's kind of ironic because wellness in itself is a very positive word. I mean, it's, you know, we're all like cringing at the idea of the wellness <laughs> movement, but it's because of how it has been marketed towards us and because it's a really like capitalistic structure of, of encouraging an entire, not even just one generation, but a huge demographic of people that are not this um, rip roaring six pack or like super, thin or fit person to be encouraged like this is the path you want to take to optimal happiness and so mm. when we're kind of cringing at this idea of the wellness movement I think that the thing that makes me cringe is the stereotypical stuff is that I have to buy into this lifestyle that doesn't match one the money that I have <laughs> like wellness is super expensive and I think that we yep. rarely talk about the financial aspects of of what wellness looks like and so when you look at it and what through what we're talking about right now which is a shift in drinking doesn't have to be a financial struggle it doesn't have to be even an entire lifestyle uh you know mental and emotional change it's a matter of destigmatizing and normalizing uh, uh you know options which uh, yeah. it's it's ironic i talk a lot when um I, ben as you know i've worked with seedlip a lot uh, throughout the years, uh, specifically in Chicago, but a huge conversation that I always brought up was it's ironic that not drinking alcohol is the niche thing. It's like, that is the, that's the thing that like we have to convince people to consider as an option. Um, when alcohol is, is proven to just be pure poison, even though like, listen, we all partake in, not we all, but I partake in it. I, 
I enjoy my my glasses of wine with my partner at night, and I am a bartender for a reason. But get those I antioxidants. Have, <laughs> it's the only reason I do it. I swear. I don't know why everybody stares at me, but I, you know, I've been a huge fan of trying to talk about the expansion of non-alcoholic culture, um, and it, I think it does come with what you're talking about, which is normalizing it. And right. you talked. I like to use the word vehicle for what CBIP sort of is through this, because the thing that I keep going back to is, is how technology has definitely also been the, a huge catalyst for the shift. Uh, technological advances and the way we're able to distill and create, and create ingredients has obviously made uh, non-alcoholic drinking culture tastier, made it more attractive. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to the branding part of it too in a minute because I think that's a huge part of it and what encourages people to take on a brand. Um, yeah. But also the the technological advances in social media, the way that we have it um, advertised to us is a huge part of how movements even start in the first place. We talked a lot. Of, uh, we've talked a lot about. Um, uh, social media activism and, and Black Lives Matter movement and how that would look uh, in a non-social media lens versus now. Obviously, we've seen what Black Lives Matter has looked like in previous decades, but I don't think people associate the two because through the social media lens, it's a very, <laughs> it's, it's all about hashtags and it's all about reposting and sharing. And so I think that's also a big part of the conversation is that wellness is so um, the word wellness doesn't even carry the same meaning anymore because it's so influenced by all these other factors. And it unfortunately um, kind of uh, shifts and minimalizes the, the true purpose of it, which is just self-betterment on your own time and through your own ability, whatever that is. Yeah, um, I, I think it's... Um you know, when, when seen through the lens of, of social media, any, any of these, these movements, be they positive or negative or uh, global or local. Um, yeah, it's just a dangerous, it is dangerous to just see it through this one lens. It's like, hold on a minute, my wellness might just be running, which is free and eating lots of fruit and veg and unprocessed foods and, but that's not that's not marketed, right? That's not what you see on social media. What you see on social media is you've got to have a gym membership and you've got to have this contraption and you've got to have this app and you've got to be doing this at a certain time in the morning and that at a certain time in the evening. Um, so yeah, social media, good and bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> T, um, I want to jump and shift a little bit if we can. Um, I'm interested, Ben, in hearing from you maybe just a little bit more about um, the, the intention behind Seed Lips distillation and like herb selection, the dork in me, the one that has the, a little bit of research in ancient distillation processes and how those kind of medicines were used. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about the intention behind that um, so that I can personally, and that we could tie it in a little bit with uh, some of the facts that I presented at the beginning. Give me one second. Sure. While Ben's grabbing that, I'll, I'll fill up the, the air. But I think one of the things, if people don't know, and Ben's about to demonstrate, is that seed lip is created through a distillation process, which you immediately associate with alcohol. But I think Ben's going to show us what looks like an ancient artifact. In so the, the, the irony, the irony, um, the irony in making a distilled non-alcoholic spirit is one of the most important um, uh, ingredients uh, is alcohol, you know? So uh, alcohol for us is absolutely incredible at two things. As, as a solvent, it's incredible um, at extraction. It's incredible at getting flavor out of raw material. And number two, it's, it's incredible at preservation. You know, things don't go off. Um, so for example, we can steep, uh, American oak um, chips in a specific ratio of ethanol and water for a specific amount of time um, and extract as well, start extracting as much flavor as we can um, from the oak 
that we just couldn't do if you weren't using ethanol um, as part of that extraction. You just couldn't do that for a long period of time in water and you wouldn't get as concentrated a uh, extraction happening. Um, we then individually distill that maceration um, twice, um, once to capture and concentrate the flavor and the second time to actually remove the small amount of alcohol that we use. Um, and we can play around with the different boiling points of alcohol versus water. Um, so, I mean, it, we, we do that individually for each of our individual ingredients, um, which are six in each product. So it's a six week process to make a bottle of seedlet, which is, you know, is not fast. Um, and it's pretty in depth when it comes to the science and technology uh, around making something that can ultimately sit on a bar, you know, sit on quite happily on a back bar, not have to sit in the fridge um, and still deliver really great flavor and aromatics, you know, for a consistent amount of time. That, w that process, um, that method of, of extraction, you know, was, was sort of documented and, and starting to happen. Uh, I can show you that, that says 1664. This is um, a book called The Art of Distillation, which um, was written by an English physician called John French. Now, this is our copy from 1664. The original was published in 1651. And that original copy was owned by King George III and now resides in the British Library. Um, wow. I've been to, I've been to see it, handled it, uh, taken photos of it. Um, <laughs> and I found, if you Google, for anyone listening, um, if you want to find what I found, Google the Art of Distillation PDF and you will find what I found, um, which is a scanned version of the book. Now, I was back in 2013, I was looking into different herbs I could grow at home. And, you know, Wikipedia and a rabbit warren of, of clicks um, meant I ended up on this document. I ended up on it because there were 200 ingredients mentioned in it. And some things, lots of things, in fact, that I'd never heard of, you know, incredible seaweeds like bladderwrack and herbs like agrimony and devil's claw and all these other kind of Harry Potter sounding sort of names. Um, so I was fascinated. <laughs> from that perspective. But then as you start reading and translating and trying to decipher the language, you actually realize that this is about uh, people using the process of distillation to make medicine. As you were talking about at the beginning, Kassira, in terms of you know the history of this and using to make herbal remedies. Now, yeah. a lot of those herbal remedies were alcoholic, but some were non-alcoholic. And this was at a time back in the 17th century when people were going mad in terms of you will find in this book recipes that include, and I'm not really doing a service to how seed lip tastes here at all. And by the way, there is no connection between how seed lip tastes and what I'm about to tell you, but there is everything in here from using human flesh, even mentioned in one recipe is using the flesh of a small boy, right? In term, and distilling that as part of making medicine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> People Coming were to your local bar, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. But they were trying to find, you know, they were trying to find the the uh, the philosopher's stone, the the elixir of life, the way to live mm -hmm. forever, and they were they were, you know, rampant in their pursuit of uh, of trying to cure ills and with very poor sanitation and no pharmaceuticals, and that's a whole other, you know topic of conversation but yeah. you know they were literally trying to harness the power of nature in order to to heal people um so yeah this this book um set me off on a course of uh i don't know anything about distillation but i'm going to buy one of these little copper stills and and have a go and i had herbs in my garden um i'm not a scientist but i learned by doing and I read and watched and tried and, you know, the process of, of taking, you know, leaves of mint from my garden and being able to make a liquid that smelt and tasted 
like that plant to me was just, it was pretty magical. Um, it was pretty incredible and incredible enough that I wanted to do it again and I wanted to keep going. And then I wanted to figure out why I wasn't getting a stronger flavor. And then I wanted to see what happened yeah. if I put a blend of ingredients. Um, and, you know, slowly but surely over a two-year period, um, I was doing it full time and wanting to launch Seedlip and learning that alcohol is a really important part of the process and learning that I needed to in individually distill everything to get the best out of it. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful opportunity to get really hands-on with ingredients and flavor and ultimately how to capture the best of that ingredient, uh, and deliver it in a drink. Um, which as you guys both know, cause we're both bartenders, um, yeah, is a, is a really, is a really cool thing that you get to do when you serve someone a drink. Yeah, we both, we both uh, dork out about that for sure. And not unlike um, figuring out how to curate medicines, um, curating your distilled product seed lip, very discovery, very intentional about, you know, how can I create, how can I do that? Um, for all of those that have maybe lost their place. Uh, we're doing a little quick check-in. This episode, we are talking about wellness as it is personified through um, non-alcoholic beverages, a shift in our drinking culture, a shift in what is available to us and how we um, receive uh, different trends or, or how we take care of ourselves, which shouldn't necessarily be trends, but are often marketed as such. Uh, we covered a little bit of a brief history of alcohol, um, and uh, and distillation and how distillation has lended itself to medicinal purposes. Um, and we shifted into a conversation about wellness, um, you know, stereotypical wellness, you know, progress and improvement, but the cringeness and the, and the capitalistic kind of marketing of wellness in our culture. Um, and then just now, Ben gave us a very, very lovely description of um, of the intention behind this discovery moment and this uh, this this moment of kind of uh, evolution with distilling a product that is non-alcoholic and is rooted in um, you know farming and and rooted in kind of natural herbs and what's available to us and 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 all of that there. Um, I want to shift the conversation now to a second question that we have. Um, we'll talk, start talking about, you know, at what point did bars and restaurants um, begin to notice the importance of non-alcoholic or sober drinking? Um, maybe where we are at right now, but also in that giving recognition to, you know, non-alcoholic beverages have definitely become a lot more available. And I think as someone that's in the Chicago bar scene, a bar scene that's very, you know, uh, influential against New York and other, and New Orleans and, and so on in cocktail culture, um, there has been a lot of uh, shift here in, you know, I ideologies around like mocktails and who was drinking a mocktail versus just being able to go in and having non-alcoholic um options available and having great cocktails that are non-alcoholic um, in, in a bar space. Uh, let's start there. So where, where did we see this kind of inclusion of non-alcoholic or sober drinking um, kind of come, play, come into play? So uh, we look, you know, back in 2015, end of 2015, when we launched, there were, I mean, there were no there were no distilled non-alcoholic spirits out there. Um, there was, you know, a couple of non-alcoholic beers. Um, Bex Blue was pretty prevalent, but non-alcoholic beer, you know, didn't have a great reputation. Um, there certainly wasn't anything in the non-alcoholic spirit space. And there was maybe a couple of products in the non-alcoholic wine type alternative sort of space. And I, you know, having sort of, I did a lot of research over two years um, before we launched and you looked at, or I looked at the best bars, restaurants, hotel bars, and 
you know, I would call up and ask what they had on menus. I would send emails saying that I was bringing a pregnant friend in. Could they send me what they had? And the results were pretty amazing in that some didn't get back to me, which I thought was pretty telling, not, not for anything other than, well, that says quite a lot. I wonder if I'd have said, what great cocktails do you have or what great vodka brands or whatever, maybe you would have got back to me. Right. Other people got back with a, we've got a range of uh, juices, uh, smoothies, um, colas, fizzy drinks. Um, so that was their version. And then you got some people who came back with a, yes, we have some mocktails and they were fruit juices and syrups. Um, that was, you know, that was really the kind of landscape five years ago. Fast forward to today, and there is absolutely no good reason why any bar, restaurant, hotel, venue around the world should not, A, be catering to someone who might not want to drink alcohol for that drink, and B, not put any effort in it, right? So it, it's not okay now. It's really not. Um, See. Yeah. To, to not do something about it. And, you know, Seedlip is now in 35 countries. We're in 10 states in the U.S. Um, the demand and the response and the support that we've had from the bar industry, from retailers and from the public has basically just been, you know, yeah, I've, I've had plenty of people tell me that I was crazy. It won't sell a bottle. What's the point? Um but the response has largely been um, twofold. Why hasn't someone done this before or, or talked about this before? Right. Um, and, and B, thank you, right? Um, because all, all we, you know, and you've got, I don't know, 50, 60 brands now in this, in this sort of non-alcoholic space. You've got big beer, wine companies, actively investing in this space um you've got bartenders uh actively sort of engaged in this space um and and it's it's kind of it's got a really exciting future um which is is great and you know you should just be able to go out and not worry about what you can drink yeah. Be that you should be able to get a great drink full stop, whether it's got alkaline or not, full stop, period, whatever you guys say over there, you know, like you should get a great drink in the same way as you get a great meal, whether it contains meat, fish, vegetarian, whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, I wonder, I think obviously when you received any form of pushback, especially when you were launching, I'm sure it came with the fact that this space doesn't exist yet and what a risk to want to be the first, especially when you're also coining it, you know, the first build mm. a non-alcoholic spirit. I think that there was, I think, especially when I was doing educational um, sort of tutorials for Seedlip uh, last year, a lot of people had, that was like the biggest question was uh, like delve into that more. I don't, I don't like, why would you make alcohol and then get rid of all the alcohol? And I was like, Oh, this is where does it go? Yeah, why, like, they were like, "Why would you do such a thing? What a travesty!" What's happening, like, guys? And so I think that the the concern could be obvious. I think there would be a lot of nerves about you know essentially beginning the space in a lot of ways, especially when you're trying to shift it from what it was, which was fruit juices and syrups. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're you're right. In the last five years, specifically the last three years the non-alcoholic sector of beverage sales is the only rising uh, sales force in, in all of hospitality, which is sort of insane. Liquor, wine, beer have been going down for the last three to five years in a row and ready to drink and non-alcoholic um, ingredients are just continuously on the rise. And I want, I just, I always think this, especially when I was working at Cindy's, a lot of the questions were why, did you want to have a non-alcoholic part of the menu? And I think the general answer is, I think there was always a desire for it, but just nobody was doing it in a thoughtful way. And I think people just settled for it. I think people knew that their options were the colorful mocktail with a bright cherry in it, 
or mm. it was a, a tonic water. I remember always assuming that tonic water was like a sober drink. Like that is what I never knew that tonic was actually like a thoughtful mixer. But honestly, only really European tonic is made in a fairly thoughtful way. No offense yeah. to our American tonic brands, but you yeah. know, until I really drank, you know, Q and Fever Tree and these other options that made me realize, oh, like there's a craftsmanship to it. Um, I think that my idea of this of this part of the menu was that it was cheaper or less quality. And that's because it, it was for the longest time. There wasn't mm -hmm. money invested into it. And I think it was once there was a demand and then also once certain bartenders in the country and in the world started taking it on, like you said, Ben, and, and doing their own thing with it, I think people became really interested in it. I think people became really inspired. I think people were stuck in a rut of hospitality with this like Fernet and beer sort of era that we were going through. They're like, oh, this is a, <laughs> and that's the tea. But <laughs> that's the tea. Uh, and we'll name names on this episode. No, but I think that that sort of sparked um, inspiration for other bartenders to to redefine how they made drinks. It's I think it's much more difficult to make tasty drinks with the non-alcoholic distilled spirits and the non-alcoholic ingredients that are out there because we rely so much on the weight of alcohol and yes. the, the burn and the experience of it that we're much more willing to forgive imbalance and impurities in cocktails than we are for non-alcoholic drinks. Um, and there's a hundred yeah. years yep. of, there's a hundred years of cocktail recipes and 300 products on the back bar, right? So, you know, anyone can make a drink uh according to a recipe it, it might not necessarily be great but they can and there's yes. no excuse like you've got the products you've got recipes they're tried and tested over decades and decades and decades you know you can do it whereas you know and and chefs i speak to have have the same challenge and opportunity when it comes to well what happens when you don't start with fish or meats right uh, so, so then what can you do? And actually the, the drinks that I've seen and, and seed lip cocktails that I've most enjoyed have been when people have actually not necessarily just done, tried to do analog versions of alcoholic counterparts. It's when they've actually sort of ripped up what they know and started from a, well, what is in seed lip garden? And where does that take me in terms of a flavor profile? And then what can I use uh, to balance that, to accentuate different, um, different taste profiles, uh, to actually come out with something that has got its own, uh, its own life and its own profile and its own spec um, right. that might not have any kind of connection to any classic cocktail. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's great freedom and the bartenders that, I've loved and love working with are those ones that focus on flavor, focus on pairing ingredients in interesting ways. Um, and it's the same, same with the chefs. So yeah, I, I, but it is more of a challenge, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. the, when we're talking about, we were sort of laughing earlier that it's ironic that wellness and non-alcoholic is the niche market and that alcohol is like just the basis and foundation of all drinking. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's my reference with that too. When creating drinks with Seedlip, it's really easy to want to fall into the non-alcoholic Negroni or non-alcoholic mm -hmm. Old Fashioned. Uh, and, it's, and people want that too. So it's nice to have sure. those options. Absolutely. Um, I, and I feel like I've seen Martino and Negroni in, in mm -hmm. the Seedlip booklets over yep. the years. And I think, the, I think it's, it's hard to break out of that uh, idea of the norm, which is the classic cocktail foundation that so many of us bartenders are taught. And it's what I think uh, some of my favorite bartenders do really well is when they're able to take a, give me a drink. And I'm like, oh, like, is it a riff on anything? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, I'm just so used to people saying it's a riff on a daiquiri or a riff on an old fashioned that to have yeah. somebody sort of thoughtfully put something together. And it's because like what you just said, they extracted the recipe as it is. Um, and the ingredients that make, let's say, seed lip, you know, Grove. And they said, I was just really inspired by the certain element in it. And I wanted to expand on that. I find that that's where people start getting really inspired by this general category. Um, and they start opening their, their minds to the non-alcoholic bitters and 
other soda mixers that are not just, you know, club soda and tonic and Coca-Cola. Yep. There are like the, the 8,000 styles of ginger ale and ginger beer that are out there and the, you know, the lemonades and the, and the elderflower tonics that are coming out, all these different styles that are expanding on gives you just so many more options. And so I, I'm excited to see how it continues to progress generally as a category. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and it's, you know, we launched um, <coughs> a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs called Acorn um, 12 months ago in the UK that, um, you know, is going to be winging its way over to the US in the not too distant future. Yay. And, um, you know, that was another, another great opportunity to look at flavor and look at bitter, you know, and bitterness. Um, as a key taste profile and, and look at the aperitif kind of side of things um, in the alcohol world and look at old recipes, you know, in this old book um, and bittering ingredients like actual acorns that we use in the products. Um, looking at different occasions, looking at the spritz as a serve and as, a, as an incredible prop within community, within a social occasion, uh, within food um, and restaurants and entertaining. Um, and so, yeah, it's the, we are just scratching the surface, you know, we are literally just scratching yeah. the surface, um, which is what makes this, this space and this movement um, so exciting because the potential uh, and the power of this within society um, I, I think is is being so underestimated and and so forgotten and so not seen and so not talked about um, mm -hmm. that yeah we we want to kind of raise raise that up and raise the profile. Yeah, I think Seedlip has has done the work that you've done here has really proven that not only is there a market um, for folks that want to consume um, a beverage that doesn't have alcohol in it that is well balanced that is delicious and creative and has intention behind the herbs that are used and has a history of of mm. is connected to a history of distillation um i think all of that is amazing and i think it speaks to the variety and the diversity of how we can consume beverages um that is inclusive to a variety of reasons or no reason at all um, yeah. why and, and making it normal. You know what I mean? A normalization. I'm going to take a moment. We're going to shift a little bit of gears and go into some rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, this is a moment for us to get a little bit acquainted with you, um, for our audience to hear a little bit more about what you're up to. Um, Simple, cute questions. The first one being, um, if you were to describe 2020 in three words, what would they be? Real simple. Real simple question. <laughs> Nature. Uh, change. And hope. Amazing. Um, if, uh, you have been watching TV, what have you been binging on any shows or series that you've been watching a lot? So, uh, my daughter River, uh, who you saw earlier, um, is, you know, I, I want to instill in her, um, an amazing fascination with the natural world. Um, because she's got to save the planet. She doesn't know that yet, but yes. um, it's all on that's her. Why she, that's why <laughs> she's been brought into this world. High hopes for her. Um, and it's just, you know, it's an amazing, it's been an amazing opportunity to, instead of watching um, crappy cartoons or uh, sort of crazily addictive children's TV shows, We've been watching Planet Earth um, yes. and, and all of David Attenborough's work. And, you know, it's, she, she has, you know, a toy zebra. Um, it's really important to me that that toy zebra has meaning beyond it being a toy for her. And so, you know, she can't go and see zebras in their natural habitat right now. 
but actually if she can at least see that they are a real living uh you know a real living animal um so yeah a anything you know with david attenborough as a soundtrack uh i will bite your hand him. off for Planet Earth has so many varieties too. They've got like the big oceans. They've got yeah. like a couple installments of, of Planet Earth. I love that. My family was a big history, um, history channel family. Maybe that's why I am the way that I am, right? Um, <laughs> um, third question, what's something that people would be surprised to know about you? Uh, I used to do, um, fire breathing shows, um, in Thailand. Uh, yeah, that would be a school. <laughs> when I school at 18. That's the one. That's amazing. I'm sorry. I gotta go. I want to wrap that one up again. So you <laughs> left school at 18 and then you went to Thailand and participated in fire breathing shows. Yeah, I, I learned how to do it while I was out there. Um, and, you know, fire stick and the poi. And um, basically, I was, you know, the uh, the Englishman um, as part of this, this fire show who uh, yeah, had this crazy fascination with fire um, and used to entertain the tourists. Um, That's wild. Yeah, it was. I haven't. I haven't done it for a long time. But um, I'm surprised that wasn't a gateway into uh, <laughs> when folks like lean into the yogi moment. I feel like those two cultures sit at the same drum circle. <laughs> yeah, they they do. There's definitely something fairly tribal about you know working sure. with with uh, fire. You know, I mean, yes, it's dangerous, but yeah, the um, yeah, it's it's a pretty powerful, powerful thing to actually work with, and then yeah, but I I wouldn't do it now. Mm. Um, last question I have for you: uh, What do you do for self care and relaxation? Um, I do a few different things, I guess. Nothing. Uh, nothing crazy and nothing expensive, definitely. So, um, you know, my garden's really important to me and, uh, my vegetable patch is very important to me. Um, and I take great, you know, I take immense pleasure, um, you know, from digging, weeding, uh, checking on my plants, watering, um, showing the kids, uh, that's probably, you know, that walking with my dogs, um, yeah, they're, they're probably just some of life's simple pleasures that certainly, you know, over the last five months, I've been able to have the, the time to do and, um, you know, not traveling and not commuting and not rushing around so much. Yeah. has um, has been amazing to just get back to some of those sort of simple pleasures. That's great. Uh, we're going to hop oh, and, uh, and, oh. and yoga and <laughs> and being well and being clean and being and adult fresh. Books. Yeah. <laughs> green no, smoothies. I, I, I love it. That's actually kind of what Matt and I are getting into right now is yoga. We're trying to become happier people and we think it might ah! help. I don't, it's working. It's all working. Yoga's great. Yoga. I you know, know. My dad has done yoga for 20 years and he swears by it and it's it's just what's marketed about it, you know. It's it's the image that uh, stereotypically can come off about it that, that's not so great for it. Yeah. yeah, we're the type of people that walks past like um, like a Lululemon, and we're like, if we spend a lot of money in there, will we become fit pretty quickly? Like, will that be the inspiration that we need? And <laughs> it has not worked. Um, so we're going to transition into Spill the Tea. And so Spill the Tea is a chance for anybody that watches or listens to Anthropological to submit questions for you and to uh, answer, uh, get some questions answered specifically regarding you or Seedlip or anything related. Um, and I really like this first question because I, I think about this a lot. Uh, was there any, what was the impetus to enter the uh, RTD space with the canned um, the canned seed lip drinks. 
Uh, great question. Um, I think there are a couple. I think number one, uh, from a business perspective, uh, the RTD space, you know, and, and especially in the US, um, is an incredibly exciting area, right? It's, it's taken off and mm-hmm. has provided a really convenient um, contemporary format um, that has sort of meaning and relevance in how we live our lives today. So it's, it's, you know, it's for today. And from a business perspective um, that, you know, when something, when you identify a space like that and you see what's happening within it, um, that's, that's got to be looked at, right. As a business opportunity. The second, the second piece then is, is probably more, more seed lip um, is that, you know, having this format of creating our own bespoke tonics um, that pair so well with each different seed lip variant means we have, you know, an element of control in, in giving somebody a best possible first experience of, you know, a perfect serve. Um, okay, it's in a can, it's not in you know, a beautiful sort of highball glass with beautiful ice, et cetera. Right. But um, there's a, a great opportunity there for somebody to try a seed lip and tonic um, it mixed perfectly uh, in a format and price point um, that's convenient and accessible. Um, so from a trial perspective, it becomes, it becomes a really important asset for us in terms of people trying our drinks. Um, and then as we are a brand that is, you know, born to meet people's needs today in terms of uh, giving them a great, sophisticated, non-alcoholic option, why wouldn't we want to be part of the same occasion where people are consuming their alcoholic RTDs? You know, why, why wouldn't we want to say, well, hold on a minute, what are you giving people who aren't drinking? Why can't they feel part of? Why can't they have something great in their hand? Um, so we're all drinking cans and it shouldn't matter again, whether someone's drinking alcohol or not, they should get a great option full stop. Is, uh, I'm curious, is the ready to drink space, um, very prevalent in Europe or is it mostly an American sort of trend right now? It Mm. was, it's, you know, White Claw have just come to the UK, for example. Um, there's a lot of activity going on within the RTD space in the UK, but it, you know, because it's come across the ocean, um, the, the trend is, you know, you look at how many different options there are now in the U S I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's huge. It's a really huge space. There aren't, there aren't a whole load of options, but for example, we have, you know, uh, that moment where you finish work and you're getting on the train to go home. That's a really important moment of being able to buy a can at the train station, you know, finished work, get on the train, sit down, crack it open, relax on your journey home. You know, that's a really, a really key occasion, which, you know, for someone like LA, well, that occasion doesn't exist because there is no major train commute to to take into account. Um, Picnics are another big one here in the UK. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see it so much across continental Europe, but um, you know the wave of seltzers and alcoholic seltzers um, in the UK is is beginning. Right, and maybe that'll shift. And I think I've seen a lot of you know not only wine brands but you know cocktail folks, um, brick and mortars in this day and age, COVID. Now that we're cleared to sell you know batch cocktails or whatever that is going to become, RTDs are going to become a lot more relevant because we're not going to be able to sit down in the same kind of space that we have been and get served in volume, whatever we're being served. You know what I mean? Picnics, outdoor, patio, you know, rooftop, whatever. All of those are going to become a lot more integral as the U.S. specifically recovers um, very slowly um, from this. But, you know, a global pandemic, it, it will shift the way that we that we interact. And I think that those that have RTDs set up or are looking to do that now are going to be able to stay super relevant in, in, in my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I also I mean, 
it is the the category that I just see growing the most right now. Um, and uh, I have to say one thing I really like about Seedlip in the years that I've, I've worked with it, I've never heard a single person from Seedlip or the brand in general try to compare itself or better itself to other brands. I feel like y'all realize that there's so much room for others to yeah. explore the space too, which is, which is great because um, the, I was talking to some other bartenders probably a year ago. I remember asking them like, why has Seedlip not done a highball, like a canned highball essentially yet? It seems like, so obvious. I think it was like two months later, I saw like a coming this summer or something like that. And I was like, it's there. It's, and it's, I think it makes the most sense because a huge conversation topic when we're discussing Seedlip in bar spaces and educational spaces is the perfect serve of it and like the best yep. way to possibly drink it. So yeah, why as a brand wouldn't you say, here, we're just going to give it to you right now, the best way to possibly drink it in this moment. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and we've got you know, there are plans, uh, there are plans to come to the US in some shape or form. Um, yeah, soon. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a space that we're looking at globally. And um, it's a modern format, right? I know it's a can, but this is a way that people are consuming alcohol today, not just in a glass out of a can too. Um, so yeah, it's it's an exciting area. That's awesome. All right, last question for Spill the Tea. Um, you kind of answered this, so maybe I'll go to this question. Uh, what, I mean, I feel like the branding for Seedlip is one of its most attractive, obviously, visually yes. aspects. You see it on a back bar and it's a conversation starter. And I think that's maybe where, to me, Seedlip did such a, like a really vital job was from the get-go, the branding was so uh, eye-catching that it made bartenders and, and uh, the liquor buyers uh, for different restaurants and bars be really interested in what that would do on a back bar. Um, mm -hmm. And how do you see the branding of Seedlip to change over the years? Do you always want to incorporate the ingredients in the artwork of the sort of front image? Um, the, just can you talk about the growth of the branding for Seedlip and where do you see it going? Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you, David, for your kind words there. Um, we taste with our eyes, right? And um, I think it was, and still is, um, incredibly important that, uh, firstly, I want to make a delicious drink and I really care about the liquid that goes in the bottle, you know, in, in Seedlip's bottles. I respect the ingredients um, and therefore, why wouldn't I want to bring that to life um, in a way that, that kind of symbolizes and, and demonstrates that care and love that I have for what's gone in the bottle and the drink that I want you to have a, a great time drinking. Um, so it, it, this, this category and this movement you know, it needed and still needs credibility, right? It, it needs to be taken seriously. It, you know, you can have a lot of fun, but it needs to be taken seriously, um, both from a, a business and category and growth perspective, but also socially and culturally um, to get to this normalization point, right? I would say at the moment, you know, not drinking is sort of teetering on the edges of becoming cool, right? And that, uh, in terms of cultural phenomenons and Kassiri, you'll know this a lot better than I do, but in terms of those tipping points that need to happen, you know, it needs to get cool and then it can transfer down and, and become normal. Exactly. And so, you know, it's just how, how quickly does it flip and on what kind of scale? Um, so it, it, it needed to, it needs to be a great looking brand and, and it needed to respect its ingredients, respect nature, respect what was in the bottle, be brought to life in a way that meant when you order a non-alcoholic cocktail or a seedlip and ginger ale in a bar in the US, uh, the bartender gets a great looking bottle off the bat bar, he's excited to show you it. Uh, you feel good, suddenly you feel like, oh my God, I'm included, like I may as well be drinking alcohol. Um, you know, there's a nice pour, it's all done, the theater's there, and the bottle goes back on the back bar. 
and your friend next to you who's having you know a whiskey or a uh, a daiquiri they get that same experience as well what you don't get is the psychological breakdown when your friends get shown these beautiful bottles and told this beautiful story and made with all the theater and then it gets to you and they reach down open a bottle and just put it on your put it on the bar and that's it no story no right. theater no ritual um, so it was looking at all the kind of all the aspects of the drinking experience from the menu to the bat bar, to the glassware, to the garnish, to uh, the vernacular, to how it's described, to the bottleneck, to the pourer, to the bottle, you know, all of the kind of uh, props around the experience um, and, and try as much as possible to make sure they all add up to something that was positive, that it wasn't compromise, that it wasn't less than, and that ultimately someone could feel part of, feel like they belonged, not feel singled out, um, and feel good about what they were doing, both for the bartender and for the receiver of the drink. Um, and branding does, you know, does have an impact and play a really important role within that. Um, if it looks good, you are going to be at least more likely to go, oh, this is interesting, I'm going to at least take a look at what this is. Um, it needs to be visually appealing, whether it's the drink or it's the bottle. I think that's a that's an amazing way and to describe it because it it connects this idea of craft. And I think craft is a really commonly used descriptor um, when it comes to the bar scene, the craft cocktail scene in the US, not unlike in the UK. Mm. Um, I think it, 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 it threads that through. It's a craft experience. You're getting something that, you know, you might even use the word artisanal, you know what I mean? Mm. Where you're getting a description and there's intention behind the ingredients and the experience attached to it. Um, it's yeah, that's, that's amazing. Thank you. And uh, that's where we're going to wrap the episode. We've done it. <laughs> As Kasira does so well, we're done. Uh, so Ben, thank you so much for thank talking you to guys. us. I know you're super busy and this was an awesome conversation and we're going to expand on the conversation of non-alcoholic culture um, and the normalizing of it, the generational differences in our next episode with uh, John DeBerry. So y'all have time right. to, to tune into that please do but Ben thanks for taking the time and uh, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Anthropological y'all thank you